Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. So we're in Hebrews 3, and um, what we did last week is we, we're in the Exodus. You guys remember who were here? We were in the Exodus. We were seeing how God rescued his people from slavery to Egypt, and he did that by sending a rescuer, right? He sent the rescuer Moses, and Moses came and he said, the Lord says, let my people go, and Moses wouldn't let him go. And so there was a series of ten plagues, and we saw last week how those plagues were actually God beating up on the gods of the Egyptians, one right after another. And at the end of that was the the death of the firstborn, and before God released that plague on the Egyptians, he told his people to take the blood of a lamb smear it on their doorposts as a, uh, as a protection to them from the angel of death. And so if they would smear that over their doorposts of their house, the, the, uh, the plague, the judgment, would not come upon them, but God would pass over them. That's why that lamb's called a Passover lamb, because God would pass over and not judge them. He would judge the other homes, but not the homes in which there was the blood on the doorposts. Um, we saw that they got freed from slavery to sin, uh, from slavery to Egypt, rather. They went through the Red Sea. They're wandering. They got the law from God on Sinai, and they got the law from God not to earn salvation. They were already saved from the Egyptians. They were already delivered. And they did that not to get to earn a relationship with God because they already had a relationship with God. He called them his son. And so we left them as they were wandering in the wilderness on the way to the promised land, learning to live as God's distinct people. And we ended that message with saying that God is, that God has sent a greater rescuer. That Jesus is the ultimate Moses who has led us out on the true exodus. And, and through Jesus, we've been shown the weakness of our idols. And Jesus is the true Passover lamb whose blood protects us from the wrath to come so that God's wrath will never affect us, but it will pass over us because of the blood of Jesus. And we saw how we've been freed from from the greater slavery of our sin to the kingdom of darkness. And we saw how God's given us his law to us as well, not to earn a relationship with him, not to earn salvation, but to live as, learn to live as his distinct people. And so we left that message saying that we are now in a time of wandering. We're now in a time when we are wandering on our way to the true promised land. And it's a real land. Um, God's going to cr- recreate this world. He's going to make this world new. And um, we're going to live in that world with Christ, with each other, um, forever, and enjoy that place. There's a real land, but we're in a time of wandering. We've not yet received that land. Um, We're in a time of on a path to the promised land. And so today, we're going to be mostly in Hebrews um, 3.12, and what we're going to see is there's a problem. There's a problem in this wandering that we're doing right now to the promised land, and the problem is, is that we tend to fall away from the trail. We tend to fall away from the trail. And there's a real kind of hiking, epic journey kind of feel to this message because that's in this text. Look at verse 12. It says, Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. This journey through the, through the wilderness, like the Israelites' journey, is a journey that's dangerous. The writer of Hebrews tells us that um, some of those Israelites that started off didn't end well. You saw that in verse 17. He talks real graphically about their bodies fell in the wilderness. I mean, that's a real peppy kind of scripture reading to do at the beginning of a service. Their bodies were left in the wilderness. They didn't make it because of their unbelief. And the writer of Hebrews is warning us that something like that could happen to us as we're on our journey with Christ. 
that our hearts could somehow turn away from Jesus and we could drift away from the trail and we could not make it to the promised land. He says that this falling away from the trail, if you look at verse 12, starts in the heart. He says, take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you, no one's immune, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. He's saying that this kind of falling away from the path, this kind of falling away from the trail starts in the heart. It, it happens, too, as we're drawn away by idols. We were talking about last week that idols can be good things. We've made ultimate things. They can be things like, um, even things like uh, our work, uh, finances, um, control, safety, comfort, all these things that can be good things in and of themselves. We can make ultimate things, and we can begin to be drawn towards those things more than we're drawn to God. They can take a place of affection in our hearts that only God deserves. And where do I see idols in this text? He says here that we can fall away from the living God. Um, in the Old Testament, it talks a lot about idols, that they're dead gods. They don't have real life in them. Only God can give life and joy and peace and hope. Idols uh, are dead. They can give nothing that they promise. And so in our journey, like the Israelites, we're journeying through a land of idols. Remember that as they were going to the promised land, they're passing through all kinds of lands, places where there were idols being worshipped in those areas, and their hearts were drawn towards those things. In our life, too, we live in a culture with very distinct idols, things that, that draw us. They have a gravitational pull on our hearts. They tug at us. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says that, that falling off of the path is often imperceptible. Take a look at verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. He says there, he says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. That, that word drift away there, the Greek word there, was often used as a nautical term. And the term was of a ship and how it drifts. You guys ever been on a ship that's drifting? If you close your eyes, you don't feel that. And so the image is like, imagine you, you, you bring your ship into the harbor, you return home, you put down your anchor, and you decide, I'm going to go to sleep for the night. And during the night, that anchor um, gives way, and the ship drifts. You don't feel it. You don't wake up. And then what happens? You wake up in the morning somewhere, and you don't know how you got there. You never felt it. It's imperceptible. The same thing happens to us as we drift away from the path of following Christ. We can wake up somewhere we never thought we would. And we've all experienced this in our regular relationships, right? In friendships and in marriages where we say, you know, we, we, we grew apart, you know, and we, we didn't even feel it happening, but all of a sudden we, we were far apart from each other. The same thing can happen with us and Christ. We don't feel it. It's imperceptible. It's, it's veering from the path in a way we don't feel. Um, verse 13 tells us, too, that this, this falling away, this drifting off of the path of following Jesus, that it happens through hardening. Take a look at verse 13. It says that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Our hearts harden over time to God. Don't they? I mean, you know that hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. You know, that we have this, this hardening process that can happen where we become less and less sensitive to, to his spirit speaking to us. We become less and less sensitive to his word. A great synonym for that in our culture would be apathy. That's our greatest, the, the greatest danger to our hearts, guys, is not atheism. It's very unlikely you're going to wake up tomorrow an atheist, right? Our greatest danger is apathy. Our greatest danger is that, is that Jesus becomes more and more of a, a, a nice thought, a nice idea, somebody I respect, but somebody I wouldn't really give my life to, right? Um, it's captioned in the old song, Jesus is just all right with me, right? He's just all right with me. Guys, our mission field is largely apathetic, not atheistic. Most of my clients, 
um, are people that um, are not opposed to Jesus. They're not opposed to the Bible. They're not opposed to the church. In fact, they would love for our culture to be more influenced by biblical values. Do you know lots of people like this? And yet there is no real desire to be a part of any local church, and there's no real strong desire to follow Jesus in any kind of intentional way. It's apathy. It's hardening. Um, It's cynicism. And it's the greatest threat to our faith as well. And then chapter 6, verse 6 says, even more scary, says that falling away from the path of Jesus can be permanent. There's people that fall away from the path of following Jesus that never return to the path. And we all know people like that, don't we? We all know people that, that we love, that at one time were very fervent for the path, and they have left the path and not returned. And that's why the book of Hebrews is filled with so many warnings. It's a, it's a book full of warnings um, to people that were subject to drifting. And you might ask, you probably are asking, um, doesn't God preserve his people? You know, doesn't the Bible say that when we're saved, we stay saved and that God secures us? And he does. John 10, 27, Jesus says this, I'm the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life. And they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. God does preserve his people. But he does it through means. You know what I mean by means? He has ways he does it. It's not just like he gives you a shot of eternal security and you go through the rest of your life with that. Um, For example, like, I'm vaccinated for rabies, just so you guys know. Um, Got vaccinated for rabies, like, uh, 20 years ago, okay? So a couple years ago, I'm a veterinarian, by the way, that's why. So um, most of you are not vaccinated for rabies, and that's fine. You probably don't need it. Um, But I got vaccinated for rabies, and, um, and just a year or two ago, I had my blood drawn to see what my titer was, and it's, like, super high. I mean, I have super high immunity to rabies. So if you guys wanted to, you could throw me in this room and throw a bunch of rabid dogs in here. I'll be fine, okay? I got amazing immunity to that. That seems to be like this vaccine gave me some sort of weird lifelong immunity to rabies, which is a wonderful gift. Um, But eternal security doesn't work that way, guys. God doesn't just give us a shot, and then no matter what we do, we're guaranteed to not fall away, right? God uses means. He uses, he has ways in which he guards his people. And what the writer of Hebrews says is that if we take no care to use those means, to be guarded by those means, then there's no guarantee that we'll make it. I mean, that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. So on the one hand, yes, God secures his people. He will make sure you make it safe to the end. But he has means in which you're supposed to grab a hold of, protections that he's given you, things like uh, prayer and being in meditation on his word and, and what's mentioned in this text, which is that the way we're going to make it to the end, the way we're going to make this journey and come safely home is that God has sent us into the wilderness together. Take a look at verse 13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. God protects us from falling away from the path by giving us travel companions. Isn't that cool? How many of you guys have read uh, Pilgrim's Progress? Right? Okay. Like the rest of you need to. I think it's like maybe a qualification. Uh, to get to heaven. No, I'm just kidding. No, it's a great book. It's an old book by uh, John Bunyan. So we're talking like 400-year-old book. Amazing book. It's an allegory of his its journey. It fits really well with this message, his journey to the celestial city and all the people he comes in contact with. But he always does the best when he has good travel companions, right? And God has given us travel companions. It's called the church. And, and the Bible uses the church in mainly two ways. One of the ways he uses it is to describe the universal church. And the universal church is every believer throughout time and throughout the world, right? So um, 
any believer around the world now or believers that have existed in the past or in the future are all part of what we call the universal church. It's every believer throughout time. And then there's what's called the local church. The local church is a gathering of believers in a particular location and time. And to use our kind of hiking journey metaphor, the universal church would be every person who's ever taken the journey we're on to the, to the promised land. Anybody that's ever taken that journey or will ever take that journey is part of the universal church. The local church, though, is a, group, a band of believers who have committed to walking that path together. Okay, And so every believer is called to be a part of a band of believers that walk that path together. So you got that image, walking on a trail, we're hiking a trail, and we're going to do it as a local body. This here is a local church. And we're on the same path with countless other believers and countless other churches, but we've committed to walking together and to help each other make it to the end. And so what he says here of how we do that is we do it by exhorting one another. Look at verse 13 again. He says, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This word exhort, it means to strongly encourage or to urge. And any of you guys who have like hiked any distance, especially if you've hiked with children, you know that there's a lot of exhortation occurring, right? There's a lot of urging. There's a lot of, uh, you know, dangling, you know, benefits of finishing, maybe threats of not finishing, right? There's lots of exhortation. There's strong urging. There's strong encouragement. And isn't it amazing, guys? I was reading this text this week, and I was thinking, isn't it amazing that God's way of protecting us from the real danger of veering off the path of following Jesus is the spoken words of his people? Isn't that amazing? I mean, could your words, your words, really be the way that God keeps people in this church from falling away from Christ? Isn't that amazing? That he would work through us in that kind of way? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about there's, there's ways you've encouraged Christians in the past that's kept them on the path? That if they wouldn't have been spoken, they might have veered, they might have wandered, they might have got caught up somewhere. That's what this text says. Take a look at it again, verse 12. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. And then look at the word, but. So take care that doesn't happen, but. Okay, here's the, the positive thing. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is today. And then what's the next word? That none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is one of God's means to protect us from wandering from the trail is brothers and sisters exhorting each other, encouraging each other. I love this word, encourage. You know, if you break it down the English word, it means to add courage, doesn't it? That we add courage to each other through our words. And every believer is in desperate need of courage to stay on the trail, aren't we? I mean, whether it's discouragement from work or marriage or money, or you're discouraged about your health or parenting or temptations or chronic pain, or maybe it's your brain chemistry or you're struggling with lack of courage because of guilt from your own sins or past hurts or failed ambitions. And that's just talking about me. No, I'm just kidding. I know we all look like super put together, right? And people talk about like, you know, you go to church, put on the church face. So people look like they're put together. But most of the people in this room are falling apart inside, just so you know. And I think that's super important because a lot of times we come to church and we think to ourselves like, I'm falling apart inside. These people are all fine. They need to do something to help me out. Why don't they notice that I have problems? But if you would switch your, your thinking and just realize that everybody in this room almost is falling apart inside. If they're not, they will be next week. 
right? This is something everybody, guys, carries discouragement. We all need a fresh infusion of courage. And and look at how powerful spirit-empowered encouragement is. I mean, this is God's means to to give us courage. I love this passage, Isaiah 50, verse 4. Write that down, because it's such a cool passage about encouragement. It says this, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, and listen to this, that I might know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. That's what encouragement does. It sustains with a word him who is weary. Isn't that awesome? Did you know that God using your mouth and speaking those words was that powerful? Do you realize the massive need of this ministry of encouragement? God strengthens people through it. And our main hindrance, guys, in this is is really a culturally ingrained individualism. That's why we don't do this as much as we should. It's individualism, and we all have been affected by our culture's ideas of individualism. Individualism, as I'm using it, would mean a focus on the needs and desires of ourselves and our families to the exclusion of others. If you think about it, we believe this. Like, we believe that it's the right thing to do to care only about our desires and our family's desires and needs to the exclusion of others. And guys, it's never been easier to do, right? I mean, we got, we got Netflix, we got Amazon Prime, we got Amazon to deliver our stuff, right? You never have to leave the house. They'll deliver food. We've got, we've got phones that if we kind of want to know what people are up to, but we don't really want to get involved, you know, you could stalk them. Like if you don't do any comments or likes, they don't even know you're watching them, right? So you could have that sense of kind of knowing what's going on, but not getting involved, right? It's individualism, right? So you get a little bit of a hit of like a relationship, but without any of the costs. And our culture breathes this, guys. And as Christians, I know I'm deeply influenced by this. This is something that's in me. It's in you. And even as, as, uh, as Christians, we can think about the church this way, that it's how does it meet the needs and desires of me and my family? And you can ask yourself, like, does it influence me? Well, let me ask you this. Do you feel personally responsible for anybody in this room besides family members? Do you feel personally responsible for anybody in this room that they make it firm until the end? Like, personally responsible. Do you feel, and I know you're like, I'm visiting today. Okay, well, you're off the hook, okay? You're like, you don't know any of these people. That's fine. Um, but do you feel personally responsible that, like Hebrews says, that they would hold their confidence firm until the end? Like, do you feel responsible? Let me ask you this. How many people in this room, not your family, if they dropped off the trail, would you pursue them? Or would you go like, that's their life. I don't want it to be weird. I don't want it to feel cultish or something like that. Like, let's let them just do their thing. They'll be fine. Right? We would never do that if we went hiking in the desert. I hope. Right? It's like, where's Bob? I don't know. He was back there when we were looking at the cactus, and now he's gone. Right? And I'm not talking about people that they went and, like, they started to, you know, to, to, to live life with another local church. And I'm not talking about, they, they went to go kind of walk down the trail with a different band of believers. That's fine. They're still on the trail, right? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people that veer from the trail, and they're gone. Do we care? Have we noticed? I mean, think about the old um, statement of Cain, right? Am I my brother's keeper, right? This passage would say yes. This passage would say yes. So would we pursue them? Would we notice? Do we feel responsible for them? The individualistic response is no. That's their life. Live and let live, live and let die, right? That's, That's their thing. 
But the writer of Hebrews, guys, calls us to feel responsible for the safe arrival of these particular people. Like, if this is your church, if you're a member of this local church, then you feel responsible for everyone in this room making it all the way on the journey. And you might say to yourself, well, that sounds like a total hassle and I don't have time for it. Yeah, let's just be honest, right? Anybody? No, we're not going to do show of hands. Uh, that just sounds like a total hassle. I don't have time for that, is the individualistic response, just so you know. And that's my heart's response, too. I'm really busy. I don't have time for that. Like, it sounds like a hassle. There's this proverb, and it's funny because it's like, there's an old African proverb. Anytime you see that on the internet, that there's an old African proverb, it's probably not an African proverb. It's just a proverb some dude made up. But um, the proverb's this, and I think it's so good. And if you say it's an African one, it sounds even better. It's, it's this. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Isn't that true? If you want to go fast, go alone, right? I can go down the trail faster, or you think you can. I'll go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He's saying that we need to go together if we're going to go far. We need each other. And so uh, one of the questions we have for discussion at lunch and stuff is, how is this a really countercultural way of looking at community and looking at life and looking at the church? It's completely countercultural. Now, some of you guys are amazing at this. Some of you guys um, are incredible at this. Many of you are. Where you're constantly, you text, you pursue, you, you ask, you're here, you're involved in people's lives, you're discussing, and it's awesome. And if we're really living out the passage like those people are, then um, we, would, we would choose our church not primarily on the benefits that it had for our family and for ourselves, maybe the preaching or the worship of the children's ministry. We would choose it because we just really feel called to help this band of believers make it safe all the way to the end. Like, you just feel like, this is the band of believers that God's called me to help along the journey. Isn't that a different way of looking at the church? This is a totally different way of looking at the church. It's, it's a biblical way. And so we do this by exhorting each other every day. How do we exhort? Take a look at Hebrews 10.24. Hebrews 10.24, he says this, same idea. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. That's that same idea, right, of, of encouraging and pushing and exhorting. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as the day draws near. A couple of things from this text. If we're going to really encourage each other, one of the things we need to do is plan ahead. Look at how the passage says, let us consider. Isn't that interesting? Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. Not just, hey, stir up one another to love and good deeds, but let's consider it. Let's think about it. Um, this passage is calling us, guys, to make a habit of considering and thinking and focusing and studying one another for the purpose of better encouraging each other. People have individual needs. They have individual struggles. We're called to consider it. Let me ask you this. How many people here, not your family, know you well enough that they would know how to encourage you specifically? Is that an interesting question? How many of them here know you well enough that they would know how to encourage you specifically? That If they were sitting back and considering how to stir you up to loving good deeds, that they would know you well enough to do that. Cool thing is, guys, that the gospel provides the best possible environment for us to be known. One of the reasons we don't want to be known, we don't want to look weak, right? We don't want to um, seem needy. But, guys, the gospel provides the best place where we can do that, where we can let people really know our weaknesses, because in the gospel, we don't have to have things all put together. We don't have to hide our sin. I know people say, and I heard this week, you know, well, when you're in church, you have to put on a face. Who told you that? I didn't tell you that. Nobody here said that. The Bible didn't say that. 
Like, but you've heard that, right? You got to put on a face. You got to look like you're good. You like you're okay. Um, that's actually, you know, in the predator prey world. I work with horses, and so horses a lot of times they'll, um, when I come, they'll look healthy. Okay, so they look sick. They see my truck pull up, and then they're fine. You know what that is? Is that's that's the prey mentality of I got to look okay so the predator doesn't single me out, right? So like in a herd, the one looks sick gets eaten by the lions. So I pull up, they go, lion, let's look healthy, right? There's no predators here, guys. Nobody's going to judge you. Nobody's going to point you out. Nobody's going to see you as some sort of example. We can be ourselves. Don't have to put on a face. It's counterproductive to this. And 1 John 1.7 says this, but if we walk in the light, meaning we're exposing ourselves in, in our lives, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So be real, be known, so we can encourage you. Um, let me give you a couple ways to kind of think through encouraging. When, when you're thinking about encouraging a particular person in this church, uh, think through some things like this. What, what unique struggles or temptations or idols come with their stage of life? I mean, even if you don't know them really well, you kind of know different stages of life. There's different temptations. There's different trials. There's different difficulties. What are those? Those are some areas I could encourage them. You can think through this. What unique physical, emotional, relationship struggles do they have that I could encourage them in? Um, who are these, this, is this person called to love that I could maybe show them some practical ways or encourage them in some practical ways to love that person? You know, we're to stir one another up to love and good deeds. What is this person's spiritual gifts? Do they even know what their spiritual gifts are? Are they running in their spiritual gifts? How about this? Do they know how fruitful and needed their gift is? I think that's super important in the church, guys, is that we would affirm and tell people, like, your gifting makes a big difference in my life. That's super encouraging because it shows God's at work through them. So we want to stir them up. This kind of planning is best done in prayer. Um, ask the Lord to reveal. As you're going through a name, names of people in this church, just look through names. Sometimes I'll go through my contact list and I'll just kind of thumb through it. Asking the Lord, reveal something to me, some way that I could encourage this person. It's amazing the insights God gives. You know, when you text that person, you give a specific encouragement to whatever they're dealing with and they're like, how'd you know that? Like, I, I was just praying. The Lord wanted me to say this to you. I'm just saying it. Like, I'm not saying like prophetically, thus saith the Lord. But if you took it as thus saith the Lord, then it was thus saith the Lord, right? God spoke to you through that encouragement. That's something God does. Um, so we need to plan ahead. Secondly, we need to be present. Look at verse 25. It says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Guys, we as a culture really struggle with being present, don't we? Do we struggle with being present? Even when we're physically present, we struggle with being present, Right? How many of you guys have conversations like this? You know, what are you doing? You're not present. A lot of times we're, we're not present. Um, uh, John, uh, Jim Elliott, um, actually, I think it was on this day, actually, that Jim Elliott, um, he was a missionary that he was killed in Ecuador. And one of the things he said is he said, wherever you are, be there. This is before smartphones and stuff like that. Wherever you are, be there. We struggle with being present, don't we? And while technology offers us a way to kind of be connected to people, nothing beats physical presence. The Apostle Paul in his third, uh, sorry, the Apostle John in his third letter, he said this to somebody who's writing to a beloved friend. He said, I have much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink or Facebook comment or emoji. I hope to see you soon that we may talk face to face. Okay, I added part of that, okay? 
But he says that physical presence, there's something special about that. And I know, guys, that that's something culturally we have a hard time with. It's like, ooh, oh, you want my physical presence. Yeah, yeah, we do. That's the best way to encourage. We have to be present. Specifically, this this meeting together in verse 25 is about our regular weekly meeting together as a church. It's about our meeting Sunday morning or whatever, you know, whatever context you're in. If you were in, you know, say Saudi Arabia, it might meet on Fridays because that's the day that, that would be open to you to do that. But that weekly gathering of the body. And it's surprising in this text, guys, this is, um, he's writing to, to persecuted Jewish Christians. There's just a few decades after the birth of the church and there's already people that have made it a habit to neglect that weekly meeting. And it was probably due to persecution, right? It's probably due to difficulties they were having. For us, a lot of times it's due to a desire for leisure or sports or we're just tired that keep us from gathering with God's people. You guys have heard really common in our culture, another thing that's common in our culture to say is like, well, you know you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. How many people have heard that? How many people have said that? It's okay. It's a safe place. You've said it too. Okay. Um, Kent Hughes has this great thing he says about it. He goes, on the most elementary level, you do not have to go to church to be a Christian but you do not have to go home to be married either, right? But in both cases, if you do not, you have a very poor relationship, (laughs) okay? And so it's important for us, if we're really going to live life together, if we're going to really walk down that path together, right, if we're going to head down that trail together, if we're going to encourage one another on the journey, that we gather together, that we be personally with each other. Um, your ministry of encouragement is super needed and it can't happen if you forsake the gathering together. And I know you guys have been great in this with many difficulties. I mean, we got young kids, right? That's That's a difficulty. There's all kinds of disease that goes around with children. They bring diseases in. Um, to your house. Um, There's struggles that you might have physically um, to get here and to be a part of this. And so it's awesome that you do. It's needed. If we forsake the gathering, we can't do this ministry together. We need to make an effort to do it. Um, Gathering needs to be a top priority to us. Um, and, And we need you. I don't know if you realize that. Like sometimes people go, oh, I need to go because I need it. Like we need you too. Uh, Spurgeon had this great situation that happened with him. He was a preacher in the 1800s, huge church, thousands of people. And um, somehow he noticed one particular person that had not come anymore, maybe somebody he knew well. And, um, and he went over to her house, and he knocks on the door. Didn't announce he was coming. It was the 1800s. And um, he didn't call her. He comes over, and uh, she lets him in. And he doesn't really say much, and he walks over. He walks over to her fire, and he takes a little uh, tongs. And he grabs like this burning, there's a pile of burning hot coals. He takes one of them and he sets it out on the, on, the, on the hearth there or whatever that kind of concrete part is right out in the front. He sets it right there and he just stands there and they're looking at each other and not saying anything. And he looks at the coal and he watches the coal and the coal's like, it's red hot but it's slowly what? It starts to turn black, right? As it cools down. He looks at that, looks at her, looks at it again. He grabs the tongs, he takes the coal, he puts it back in with the other burning red coals. And then it, it turns red again, right? He looks at it, he looks at her, and she goes, I'll be there next week. <laughs> Isn't that cool? But that's what it's about, right? It's about we need each other. When we're gathered together, we become, you know, our, our desire for the Lord stirs up again. Our courage builds up. I mean, I, I think it's funny because no one really wants to say, and I know you probably don't want to say to your friends, you don't want to say like, hey, you need to go to church, right? For some reason we want to say that. We don't sound legalistic or whatever. Um, but... Is it legalistic for a doctor to tell their kidney patient they need to go to dialysis every week? 
It's like, hey, you got bad kidneys, you need to go to dialysis every week. It's like, well, that's pretty legalistic, doctor. It's like, no, we need this. And to be told that we need this is, is, is not legalistic. Okay, God's design, guys, this main gathering is the best place to encourage one another. You just think through the things that we do. Like, so we have call to worship, right? And uh, somebody comes forward here, and they say to you, God is welcoming you into this place. People come here all burdened by their sin and stuff like that. And the, the statement is, I know you're a sinner. I know you've come with sin, but God is welcoming you here. Um, we have a time with the word where, we, where God gives us a fresh view of Christ and stirs our affections for him. We're able to worship together, express his worth together. We're able to take communion, which is our feasting together on Christ. And then the cool thing is you get a benediction and somebody blesses you and that's God's blessing to send you out. But it's not just that. There's the serving together this morning, right? Um, we get encouraged as we spend time together. There's a couple hours of setup, and, which is a great time. If you guys ever want to come early, and not just to serve and set up, but if you want prayer, if you want counsel, you want to talk through some things, we're here. We'd love to do that. We'll probably hand you something to carry as we do it, but um, we could do that together. It's the most encouraging thing, guys. The best friendships and the best encouragement I've ever found in relationships is not when we're focused on ourselves and we're just sitting there looking at each other, talking about our feelings. Okay? Dudes don't do that. Well, anyway. Um, it's when we have a common mission, right? I mean, the best friendships and the best encouragement come from being on a common mission. You think about soldiers in, in war, or you think about, like, the best friendship stories like Lord of the Rings. It's about a quest with friends, Right? You will have the most encouraging time and enjoy this place the most if you're involved. Seriously, guys. There's nothing more fun than building something together. Because the other option is kind of a consumeristic option where you go like, um, you know, does this really have all the services I'm looking for? Does this have all the, the things I want? And I'll tell you what, it doesn't. It can't. It's new. It comes out of a trailer every morning. Like, this cannot have everything you need right? There are other places where you could have things built up for you and have all the programs that have the facilities in an established church. We're not there yet. We're baby. The big churches will have those things. We won't have those things, but I'll tell you one thing we can't offer you. It's the joy of building something together. Is you want to build something together? You just want to be pioneers? You got my thing. Well, that's not for me. Well, that's what we're doing, okay? We're pioneers. We're camping. We're trying to reach a new area. We're building this together, and we'd love to have you have the joy of doing that together. The other thing we've got is like the final hour after this. We get done early. We're usually done well before 11. We've got this place till noon. You can hang out. You can encourage each other. It's so cool to see people praying together and sharing their joys and their burdens, and we've seen people healed here. Um, to, you know, you could bring your kids in here. They can run around. You're not going to break anything in here. Let your kids run around. Talk to people. Stay. Enjoy it. Encourage one another. We want this to be the best possible place, guys, for you to build friendships and encourage each other, to create friendships, to build friendships, to restore them here in this place, in this room, in this school auditorium with random school supplies in the back that to an OCD person drives me insane. Like, that would never be tolerated in my world, but it's here. So, another thing we have, we go out to lunch together, plan to do that for the next couple weeks. We've got this card here uh, all over the place. I guess I should hold it. I'm holding it. Um, here's a few questions about the message. Go to lunch with some people here. We're going to go over to the kind of Rubio's habit area over there and um, just discuss some of the things. You can go somewhere else. You get people over to your house or whatever. But for the next few weeks, we're going to discuss some things about the message. I mean, we have to eat anyway. Let's do it together. Sunday, guys, is your opportunity to practice your ministry of encouragement. It says to do it every day. This will be the day to start. And we need it. 
We need it. You have no idea how much people need it in this room. I love this quote by Rosaria Butterfield. She said this. Listen to this. Think about the people around you. We may never know the treacherous journey people have taken to land in the pew next to us. Isn't that true? We have no idea of the hurt and the difficulty and the hardships and the need for courage in this room. So what does is, what is the encouragement sound like? I just want to end with, how do we give gospel encouragement? It sounds different for different people, but it should be from the word, right? I mean, the writer of Hebrews at the very end in chapter 13, verse 22, he says that this, the, the letter of Hebrews is his word of exhortation. He said this whole thing was his word of encouragement. This whole thing was his way of imparting courage to them. In, in, in 3, verse 14, he says that, to remain faithful to Jesus, to stay on that path, is to hold fast our original confidence firm until the end. People need courage. They need, in that wording, confidence, right? We need gospel confidence. We need confidence we can make it. We need confidence that God's for us. And so what I did just in closing is I looked up the word confidence just in Hebrews and thought through what kind of ways does he give his readers courage and confidence to get back on the trail? First one I found, it was in Hebrews uh, 4.14. Take a look at it. He says, since, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confidence, firm until the end. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Such an awesome passage to give us courage, to encourage us, to give us confidence. In this passage, he says that in Jesus, the great white throne of judgment that we were all headed to, right? We're all headed to this great white throne of judgment. It's in, it's in Revelation 19. He says that in Jesus, the great white throne of judgment has been converted to a throne of grace. Isn't that awesome? That in Jesus, the execution block we were headed towards has been turned into a help bar where our Father meets us and greets us and is there for our help. Isn't that amazing? It was once a throne where we had to answer for all of our sins. Now it's a throne from which we can receive answers to our prayer. Remind people about that. Here's another one, Hebrews 10, 19, about confidence. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, not on our own merit, not on our goodness, but by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, which was opened to us through the curtain that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Guys, in Jesus, the way to God is wide open. In the Old Testament times, there was the Holy of Holies, and there was this super heavy, thick curtain. And it might as well said on it, keep out, right? Only the high priest could go in only once a year. But in Jesus, it says that that way's been opened up wide. And he says that curtain was his flesh. That the way he opened access, the way he opened that curtain that kept us out, was his body torn on the cross, he says the curtain was his flesh. And so as his body was torn on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins, we can now approach. And I love in this passage how it talks about a clean conscience. Don't you love that? You know, people talk about, well, religion, it's all about guilt. Not if you're doing it right. The gospel is not about guilt. If you're carrying around guilt and you've been trusting in Jesus, it's, it, it, we need to talk. Because you're not enjoying the gospel as you should. 
what should happen at some point in your life is that guilt should be taken away. When Jesus died on the cross and his flesh was torn in two to give you access and he said, it is finished, that's something you need to believe. That's something you need to believe. And people say, well, you know, I, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. What you're basically saying is, is you're saying that your standard of holiness is higher than God's, right? Okay, God took care of this in a very extreme and thorough way. The innocent son of God died on the cross in your place so that his blood would wipe your conscience clean. That should be enough for you. It's enough for him, okay? And so we have this access with a clean conscience. He's cleansed us from from an evil conscience, It's one of the greatest gifts of the cross. And I just say to any of you who are here who aren't really sure if you know Christ, let's talk because I want you to leave here with a clean conscience. Nothing else can give that to you. Psychology cannot give that to you, as as beneficial as some of it is. It cannot give that to you. Um, No substance can give that to you. Um, No relationship can give that to you. No education can do that to you. No accomplishment in your work can take away a bad conscience. Only Christ can, and he's done it through his death and resurrection. It is finished. Let me give you one last confidence one. Hebrews 10.35 says this. And he's saying this to people who are shaky, right? They're feeling like veering from the trail, or maybe they're starting to veer into the the brush, right? He says this, Hebrews 10.35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence. Isn't that awesome? Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Guys, the promised land that we're on our way to is a real land. And today, just do yourself a favor. Look at Revelation 21 and 22. It's a real land. We're not going to head to some you know, light blue background, white puffy clouds, harps and arches that don't seem to go anywhere, and St. Peter at a desk, Okay? That's not it. The picture that you have in Revelation is this particular world made new, renovated, sin removed, flourishing, human beings enjoying community, building things, having meaningful labor to do, doing art and science and exploration and enjoyment, all the things we were created to do in a world without sin and with Christ. And this is radically different, guys, than like the Eastern point of view. The Eastern point of view is that your end, it might be pleasurable, but it's impersonal. You kind of melt into a big pool of consciousness, and it's impersonal, and all your relationships die. The Western point of view, kind of the naturalistic point of view, where there's, there's no afterlife, um, there's nothing in the end. You die and there's nothing. All relationships die. But in the gospel, guys, we see a city. Revelation 22, we see the throne of God in the midst of the city, and we see the rivers of the water and the trees of of life on either side. And we see people and they're talking and they're laughing and they're enjoying each other in Jesus. And, and, the com- and we'll enjoy the company of all those who have made this treacherous journey with us. And guys, you know what's going to be really cool? We are going to be so thankful to each other for every way that we encouraged each other on the way. We're going to remember ways where we're like, I don't, you don't remember it, but back then I was done. <laughs> I was done with my marriage. I was done with my work. I was done with dealing with all these problems. And you strengthen me with a word. It's going to be so good, guys. It's so worth it. Keep going. We'll make it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the hope we have in Jesus. We thank you for that new world that we long for. Father, we long for it. 
And Lord, we pray that you would keep that longing going in our hearts. We are prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. We pray you take our hearts and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. Lord, and we pray that as a community, Lord, that we would help to fasten each other to the path. To cheer each other along. To say, keep moving forward. Jesus is worth it. As Chad was having us repeat over and over, Jesus is greater than anything that's drawing us away. And we pray, Lord, as we take communion, as we worship you, Lord, we pray that we would leave here ready to get back on the path, Lord. There's probably people here who have been in the weeds, in the, in the brush, in the rocks, in the ditch for quite some time. And we pray, Lord, that this morning would be that time of restoration. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.